series uh, in the book of Mark this morning, and would you turn to Mark chapter 1 if you don't have your Bible and want to use the Bible that's there in the pew, you can find the Gospel of Mark on page 836. Mark is the shortest of the Gospels in many ways compacted and and tense and, and intense, uh, thick in the in the ground that it covers, and action oriented in its feel. And you get a feel for this because in the two gospels that are closely related to it, Luke and Mark, um, Matthew, they end up in chapters three and four, where this ends up in the first fifteen verses. Okay. <laughs> So that gives you a little idea of how compactly uh, Mark is dealing with some of these things. <clears throat> so, Mark 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals. And the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Thus the reading of God's word. Let us pray. O Lord, we come to you who gave your spirit so freely to the Lord Jesus, who in turn is the one who baptizes with the spirit. Lord, give your spirit freely to us, we pray. We thank you for your promises that you will open up our eyes to behold wonderful things out of your word. We rest in you to do this, for we're frail and feeble and by nature hard-hearted And Lord, even what we hear, we're so lacking in taking it to heart and applying it in our lives and living it out. So bless us by your Spirit uh, 
that your word would take hold in our hearts and produce fruit for the glory of Jesus. Amen. Uh, Kids, you imagine with me being at a fireworks display, 4th of July, and you've been told that that final uh, demonstration is going to be bigger than anything you've ever seen. And we all know what that's like. You get a fireworks display and you, you know the fireworks are coming, fireworks are coming. And then there's sometimes a little pause and then it just breaks out like crazy. And it's almost like as many as you've just seen, there are more and they're all up there at once. You know, just this giant explosion of fireworks. But imagine that you're going to this particular fireworks display and have the normal fireworks. It lasts a good 10 minutes. It's just been wonderful and great. And then there's the pause. And so you're, okay, here it comes. Here it comes. Three minutes. Five minutes. Start looking around. Ten minutes. And you start thinking, somebody lost their match. You know, just what's going on? And then 15 minutes, 20 minutes, and people just start filing out, assuming, well, they must not have had this final thing. Something must have happened. And 30 minutes, and almost nobody's there. And an hour later, they're like three crazy people, right? They said they're going to be one, and I'm going to stay here until I see it. And then suddenly, after one hour, the fireworks burst forth in a wall like you've never seen before. And not only that, they start spreading around you as they continue here. And they wrap all the way around you. And you can't believe it as you look in every direction. And then suddenly, they're exploding all over you. You know, and you're just absolutely blown away. I'd like to suggest to you that this is something of what is happening in chapter 1 of, of Mark. For people have been waiting for this final display of the glory of God, the final entry of God into this world to bring forth his kingdom. It was pronounced by the uh, prophets again and again. And here in John's ministry and in Jesus' baptism and temptation, this, the fireworks have finally gone on, off and we know from all that the New Testament teaches us that in one sense, they spread throughout the whole world and finally engulf creation itself. And this kingdom that explodes will bring us to the new heavens and the new earth at the second coming of Christ. But there was a long wait, and there were a lot of people thinking, maybe it's not going to even come anymore. Maybe God has forgotten us. But God had not. And it comes forth in the person of John as he is this voice in the wilderness crying, prepare the way of the Lord. So it begins this way as though he's saying, what you're about to read is the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and it all started like this. And then he enters into it with this... uh, pronouncement of Isaiah. And then immediately after this prophecy of Isaiah, he says simply, John appeared. So we're to realize, oh, he's the one that they had just spoken of, the messenger before the Lord's face. He is the voice of one crying in the wilderness, John 
appeared. And I want to look at this passage with uh, three W's. I'm not big on alliteration, as you know, but we're going to do it this morning. Uh, so you can write home to all your relatives uh, that we used alliteration. Um, so first, it's the wilderness, all right? Then water, namely the water of baptism. First, the water of Christ's baptism and, or, or the people's baptism. Then the water of Christ's baptism. And finally, war. Okay, there's the wilderness, there's the water, and then there is the war. Now, it, it might not be apparent at first that the wilderness is actually a place of hope, a place of renewal, a place of repentance with the background of the Old Testament. Because God called Israel out of Egypt to meet with him and covenant with him and bond with him in the wilderness. In fact, this was seen as a kind of honeymoon for the people of God. You get a feel for this in Jeremiah chapter 2 when he says, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Israel was holy to Yahweh. Holy means separated out and belonging in a special way to him. The first fruits of, this, of his harvest. And so the prophets began to look back at the wilderness in the hope that they might again become intimate with God in the wilderness. That time had come. Okay? And so you hear things like this. Behold, God says, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there she will answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. So there is this hope, this prophecy that God will meet with us again in the wilderness. That he will be intimate with us again. And so it was on purpose, you see, that John set up shop in the wilderness. It's part of the declaration that the time has come. And so Isaiah did say, a voice in the wilderness. And later, that was in chapter 40, and later in Isaiah... The promise always had reference to the wilderness. And God would say that he's going to bring springs of water and rivers into the desert. That he will pour water on the thirsty ground and pour out his spirit upon his people so that they will spring up like willows by flowing streams. You see, that's the language. I will act for you in the desert and bring forth springs and fruitfulness there. And so in fulfillment of that, this desert is, becomes this place of hope and transformation and fulfillment. And now in Christ Jesus, God is appearing in the wilderness. How beautiful this is. What a, a, a drawing together of these lines of meeting with God in the wilderness. And his baptism and temptation are like a lightning bolt bursting upon the world. The kingdom has come. The restoration of the desert is here in Christ Jesus. And John comes to announce it, that 
and to prepare the way of the Lord. And it's important in some application for us to realize that the desert is also this image of the bleakness of humankind, the bleakness and barrenness of each of our lives individually and collectively. But as it says, God is going to pour water on our thirsty ground. He's going to pour out his spirit upon his people. And that's why John says, I've baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This Son of God is none other than God. Only God can control and spend and and pour out the Spirit. This one Mark calls the Son of God. And John says, will own and pour out the Holy Spirit. And so for each of us, we need to understand that life and fruitfulness will break out in the wilderness. And it means it will break out in my wilderness, right? In our wilderness. And it doesn't matter what shape our wilderness is. Whether it's your mistreatment, my mistreatment of others our backstabbing words, our addictions, our laziness and waste, or the neglect or rejection or abuse you may have endured. You may feel absolutely helpless, absolutely stuck in the concrete of sin. You may feel that there's no hope for forgiveness, no hope for change. But this announces that in the wilderness Blessing has come. In the wilderness, there is fruitfulness and life. There's springs of water that are formed by God where no one could have thought that they would be, where you couldn't have thought that they would be. But God will make that happen. That's the message you see. That whole, this whole section, 1 through 13, takes place in the wilderness. The whole establishment of the Son of God takes place in the wilderness to teach us that it doesn't matter the condition, he will bring forth fruit. In the words of Jeremiah thirty-two fifteen, the spirit will be poured out on high and the wilderness will become a fruitful field. The Lord sets up shop in the desert and he sets up shop in our desert. So the wilderness, the wilderness. But then there is the water. The water of baptism. First, the water of the people's baptism. And then there's the water of Christ's baptism. Now, John's baptism is unique. They've tried to connect it with certain things in Jewish or uh, other uh, uh, Jewish movements. But it is thought to be just an absolute, unique, unprecedented action on John's part. A dramatic, prophetic sign of cleansing and renewal. And obviously, as he says, prepare the way of the Lord, that's done specifically by baptism, isn't it? He says, prepare the way of the Lord, and he says he proclaims a baptism of repentance for forgiveness of sins. So the preparation for the Lord is the baptism of repentance for forgiveness. Now, it's important for us to understand that this repentance doesn't mean God saying to us, hey, get your act together, clean yourself up, change yourself, because I'm coming. 
But sometimes we read it that way. I got to fix my own life on my own and be ready when God gets here or I'm curtains. I'm, I'm ash. I'm gone unless I fix myself. You see, that's not what is being said here. This baptism, it says, is of repentance. And this means a baptism that not only concerns repentance or is characterized by repentance, but it's a baptism that guarantees repentance, that assures us of repentance. It's a baptism that proclaims the grace of repentance, you see. And so this baptism is announcing liberation from the practice of sin. This baptism is announcing a new freedom that is breaking out from the habits and practice and slavery of sin. That's what repentance is. And it's also a liberation then from the guilt and the condemnation of sin because it's a repentance for forgiveness. So there is change of life and there is forgiveness of sins that is bound up in the promise of this baptism. And and it says that the baptism is proclaimed and that means that this baptism is an action of God, you see. It's not just a human action, it's an action of God. And, And notice also it says when they were baptized that they were confessing their sins. Confession means, uh, confession is done in the hope and expectation of mercy. As Romans 2 says, he shows us kindness to lead us to repentance. The promise in Isaiah 55 to to return to the Lord, he says, that he may have compassion on him. He will abundantly pardon. So it's not that you win his compassion by how good your repentance is. It's that you see his compassion and his love and it draws you to confess your sins openly. You realize, I don't have to hide anymore from this God. Mercy is here. Kindness and grace is here. The prospect of change is here. The prospect of forgiveness. Oh, yes, Lord, I confess my sins. I confess all that I've done against you. That's the sense here, a baptism that proclaims mercy and forgiveness. And you have to understand that as it it describes this voice that prepares the way of the Lord. What is that way? What is the way of the Lord? Well, it's the way of salvation. He's come to save his people, right? He's come to rescue us. He's come ultimately to die. And his path will be one of suffering. As James Edwards says, a scholar that writes on Mark, in Mark, the way of God is ultimately the way of Jesus to the cross. That's the way of God. And so you don't prepare by your good works or your great repentance to then experience mercy in the way of Christ's cross. You prepare for the way of the cross by humbling yourself, by being broken and open about your sin, about being contrite and helpless in the hands of this great God who would rescue you 
through the cross of Christ. And so if I continue in my pride and self-righteousness, rejecting any need of a Savior, then I'm rejecting the way of the Lord. I'm certainly not preparing the way of the Lord. To prepare for the way of the Lord is to acknowledge and confess my sins in the light of His goodness, in the light of His righteous judgment. To prepare the way of the Lord is to receive Him with gratitude, to depend upon Him for forgiveness and transformation, to humbly receive everything He promises to do. That's the way we prepare for the way of the Lord. It is a way of salvation a way of rescue. And then it's astounding that this Lord Jesus, who in verse 8 is said that he'll baptize us with the Holy Spirit, which announces his divinity, announces that this one is associated with God. None other than God can do that. And then in the very next verse, it says, he came from Nazareth and was baptized. And it just makes you scratch your head he he's divine but then why would he be baptized what is that about and in this way Jesus is so identifying with Israel so identifying with the people of God that in this baptism he is becoming the perfect Israelite who perfectly dedicates himself to God there's a phrase that many of us have read many times. It says, my repentance needs repenting of and my tears need washing in the blood of Christ, right? My repentance can't bear God's scrutiny. My tears even can't bear God's scrutiny. I'm utterly dependent upon the grace of God and the forgiveness of God in everything I do. But here is an encouragement that Jesus completely consecrates himself to God and identifies with us and represents us. And so we are consecrated in union with him. We are dedicated in a perfect way because we are joined to Christ. And so we don't ultimately have to worry, though we want to be sincere in our repentance and more and more deep in our repentance and real in our repentance we're not all worried if, if it's perfect, if it's exactly right. We know that all of our, our, our good, even our prayers and our repentance, are caught up in the very dedication of Christ himself. He is the perfect one before God. And in him, then, you and I are fully given up to God. And in the original uh, time at Sinai... God didn't come down upon the mountain until Israel had consecrated herself. But look what happens when Jesus consecrates himself. It's as though God just rips the heavens open as he comes down. And the word is the same as when the temple curtain was ripped apart. That the heavens themselves are opened up in a dynamic, cataclysmic move of God to come down in response to the consecration of Christ. And his spirit is given to Christ. It says not only that the spirit came on him, but literally the spirit came into him to fill him, to equip him, to give him all that he needs as 
the Messiah for us. And then this great announcement that no prophet or priest or king had ever heard before. This is my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. This recalls the Lord's words to Abraham. Listen to what the Lord says. Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and offer him in sacrifice. And so here are overtones of that announcement to Abraham. Your only son whom you belo- or who's your beloved. And God saying, this is my beloved son. Some translations are my unique son, my only son. And so in this way, there's the overtone that God's only son, unlike Isaac who was spared, unlike Isaac for whom God had a ram to substitute, here is the substitute. Here is the one who will die. He kept Isaac from dying, but he will allow his own son to die for us. My beloved is the one whom I will sacrifice for the world. And in doing, calling him his son, he's again identifying him with Israel. Because uh, God told Moses to say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And so again, he's being pronounced as true Israel, the true son who pleases the father, where God's original son Israel rebelled against the father. Now the true son is here and he's obeying the father. He's pleasing the father. And he's the foundation and support and union with him, with the new people of God that will find their place before the father through Christ. And I want to urge you, That by trusting in Christ, you are united to everything that he is. In him, you're perfectly dedicated to the Father. In him, you partake of the Holy Spirit. And in him, you are made his beloved. It's amazing that Paul can say of us, be imitators of God As beloved children. Or in Colossians, that we are God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. So this pronouncement upon Jesus, this is my son, this is my beloved one, is now in our union with Christ pronounced on you and me. You enjoy God's favor through Christ. You get to be sheltered under that pronouncement. That reaches out and embraces you as you are united to Christ so that you become God's beloved. And many of you don't feel like you're God's beloved. Many of you will tip your hat and say, yeah, I know God's forgiven me of my sin, but the way you picture it is God has accepted you with his arms crossed and says, get out, get out of my sight. I won't let you go to hell, but that's about it. You know? And that's kind of how we live with a sense of, You know, I'm wrong, I'm right, I'm wrong, I'm right. God likes me, God doesn't like me. I don't know how he feels about me. No, you are in Christ. No matter how much sin you've you've done, no matter your condition, as you trust in him and his mercy touches you and you begin to turn your life over to him, 
then you are his beloved. This pronouncement is not made ultimately for his sake. He was always God's beloved son in eternity. But he takes on flesh and he becomes the beloved human being. And now in union with him, we can become the beloved. Do you see yourself as God's beloved? Do you see yourself with his favor upon you? And do you realize you're not ever going to be accepted by God because you're good enough? You're never going to be on a performance basis with God because you and I can't do that. He operates by mercy. Our only hope is that Christ has borne off our sin, that Christ has dedicated himself perfectly and heard the pronouncement of God's love, and we are caught up in him together. Oh, rest in being his beloved. And so there is the wilderness. There's this water of baptism for the people of God, and then this water of baptism for Christ himself, and the the momentous event this is, and what it means for us. And then crazy war breaks out immediately. I mean, immediately. You can't even catch your breath. Jesus hears this pronouncement, and then the Spirit immediately drove him. The the word literally is threw him out. Threw him out into the wilderness. And there he was in the wilderness 40 days. This has reference to uh, Moses and Elijah and even the people of Israel. So there's this image, you see, of Jesus being tempted where Israel was tempted in the wilderness. Uh, And there is the mention of the wild animals who are associated with Satan. Satan. And uh, Satan, by the way, means the adversary that comes against him. And he's with the wild animals. This adds to the terror of the situation, the sense of danger of the situation. And several scholars point out that this book was written to... Christians in Rome, and they themselves, under Nero at this time, are suffering from the wild beasts and dying. And here they hear hear that their Lord was subject to the wild beasts as well. What a comfort that would be to them to hear this message. And as the angels guided the Israelites in the wilderness, or the angel, it says, now a multitude of angels come and are ministering to Christ. But here you see, thrown into the wilderness, he begins his war, his onslaught of uh, Satan himself and his kingdom. His uh, first healing has to do with demonic activity. His first parable concerns Satan. As John says in 1 John 3, that the Son of God came for this purpose that he might destroy the works of the devil. Mark really gives us that kind of picture, that he has come to fight to destroy the enemy himself, to face the terror and the violent opposition of Satan. And he is doing this again on our behalf to defeat this enemy. So that in John 12, at the point of his death, he says, now the God of this world is cast out. So that The writer of Hebrews can say in chapter 2, He destroyed the one who held the power of death and the fear that we have. And I think of this as 
all of our lives, Satan holds the, the, the keys of your death, just shakes them and mocks you and laughs at you and says, I've got you. I've got you. No matter what happens to you, you're mine. You're mine. Just shaking and clanging those keys. And Jesus, as it were, just snatches them out of his hand. And he has nothing to shake anymore over you. Your life has, light, your, your, your life has eternal life pronounced over it. You are owned not by Satan, but you are owned by Christ. So that we can say with Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, Death, where is your sting? Where is your victory? Satan, you have me no more. And based upon our union with Christ, we can live out new lives of resistance to him. So that, as Paul says in Ephesians 6, we stand strong in the Lord against the spiritual forces that we face. Or even in battle language in James 4, he says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. You will rout him in battle is the language there. That, that doesn't sound right, does it? doesn't sound like that would happen in our lives. But that's what happens in our union with Christ, in our union with his defeat of the enemy and his destruction of Satan. So that Paul can say in Romans 16, 20, God will soon, the God of peace will soon trample or crush Satan under your feet. I'm not sure what all that looks like, both in this life and in the final day. But that's what's going to happen. Because of what Christ did here. And there, there's a kind of open feel of this. It, it doesn't necessarily mean that the temptation was over, according to Mark. But this was the beginning of the temptation that went throughout the whole of Christ's life. And he fought for us. And he died for us. And he tore the kingdom, uh, of, uh, tore his people out of the hands of Satan so that we would belong to him. Isn't it amazing that your king has fought for you? There was a, a, a book I read, I read by uh, called The Reavers. Uh, some of you have read it. And uh, in this uh, book, there is a, a boy that goes to a place that's not altogether a great place uh, where his, the guy that runs his uh, dad's uh, farm is going. And while he's there, he gets to know one of these ladies who has... Uh, being used in a terrible way. And at one point, he gets in a fight with this horrible little boy uh, who's bigger than him, older than him. Uh, he gets in a terrible fight with him uh, because he said something about this woman that this young boy has begun to be, uh, begun to care for. And he fights this older boy, and he gets cut with a knife. And later... That woman comes to him and she binds up his wound and she says, I've had a lot of men fight over me, but I've never had a man fight for me. And that's what Jesus does here. He fights for us to rescue us, to bring us into his defeat of the enemy. And how glorious this is for us, this war that he has won. And I won't touch on it because this uh, takes us into the next section of Mark, but the second part of the war, you might say, begins in verses 14 and 15 in the proclamation of this great gospel. The time is here. The kingdom has come. Repent and believe in the gospel. 
we are called to this wonderful life of constantly turning to him, constantly entrusting ourselves to this one who was baptized for us, who gives us the spirit, who wins us favor with God, who defeats our enemy. What a king to serve. What a king to serve who has acted so dramatically and graciously for your salvation. I love how this was put in our own confession, which is a great way to describe this ongoing repentance and faith. Grant us now, we pray, the grace to die daily to sin and to rise daily to new life in Christ. May God give give us this. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you that you have so graciously dealt with us in Christ Jesus. Lord, we are amazed at that love, amazed that the God of all creation would come to earth and act on our behalf in these ways. Oh, we rejoice in you. Give us grace to to know you, to love you, and to give ourselves to you. For Jesus' sake, amen.